Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. So as we come to this last section in the book of Genesis, we'll be reminded once again of God's sovereign plan. His redemptive plan that he has been working out and bringing to pass as we've been going through this wonderful book and will continue to do so as we read the rest of the Bible. And I trust that as we see in these last few verses of how God is continuing to bring about his redemptive plan, it would reassure us of who God is and what He has done in the lives of His people, that it will reassure us of the hope that we have in Christ, and it will reassure us even of God's working in this world and what He is continuing to do. A couple of weeks ago, as we were in the last part of Genesis 49 and the first part of Genesis 50, we saw the death of Jacob. And we saw of how it was such a stately funeral procession. And in more ways than one, it was pointing to the fact that God will bring about the Exodus event that he will bring his people, the people of Israel, that they will not remain in Egypt, that Egypt was not their home, but they would bring them back to the land of Canaan. And we saw of how um, even the sons went back to the land of Canaan along with the Egyptians and along with all the high officials And God witnessed to this fact in many ways that his promises will come to pass. And this morning, in this last section, we're going to look at the last days of Joseph, as I have titled this morning's sermon. We're going to look at this section under three words, really. We're going to look at the reassurance that we see in verses 15 through to 18. Then we're going to look at the providence in verses 19 through to 21. And then lastly, we're going to look at the hope in verses 22 to 26. I trust that it'll encourage us once again of who God is and His plan of redemption in and through His Son, and it'll cause us to love Him more and trust Him more and wait for the return of his son. So firstly, the reassurance in verses 15 through to 18. Verse 15 says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their, brother, saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. See, with the death of Jacob, fears and worries come into the mind of Joseph's brothers. They doubt Joseph's goodness and forgiveness toward them. They think that throughout all this time, it was only because of their father Jacob whom Joseph loved so much, it was only because Jacob was still alive that Joseph didn't punish them. Because if he were to punish them while Jacob was alive, then perhaps uh, Joseph would add more sorrow to his beloved father's life. But now that their father Jacob is dead, and there's no patriarchal authority over Joseph, Now, what's to stop Joseph, this this mighty ruler in Egypt, from punishing us for all the evil that we have done to him? The brothers think to themselves. 
In fact, the term where it says, maybe Jacob will hate us, it's the same word that's used in Genesis 49 and 23 when it says that they harassed him severely uh, or harassed him with hatred when it's speaking of Joseph. When it talks about these archers shooting arrows, especially in the prophecy of Jacob regarding Joseph. And in that prophecy where Jacob talks about Joseph, it's describing the way that the brothers treated Joseph and how, how others like Potiphar's wife treated Joseph with hatred. And now that same word is used here when the brothers are thinking about what Joseph will do. In other words, the brothers are thinking that Joseph is going to treat them the same way that they had treated him with hatred. Notice again what they say. Maybe Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. If you remember, in the early years, the brothers so hated Joseph that they could not even speak shalom or peace to Joseph or even speak a kind word to their brother Joseph, as Genesis 37 verse 4 told us. And this hatred you know, of regularly treating Joseph harshly, it continued to go on. And it reached a climax where the, when Joseph came to check on his brothers, the brothers just want to kill Joseph. The hatred had reached its very climax. The, the everyday hatred that they had for Joseph reached its climax there. And we saw of how they put him in a pit to leave him to die even whilst Joseph begged them to spare his life. And then eventually, with no care in the world, without even blinking an eyelid, they sold Joseph into slavery simply because they could just make some profit out of him. That's how much harm and hatred they had for Joseph. So the brothers are now thinking, for all the hatred and the evil that we have done to him, surely Joseph is now going to pay us back. I mean, that would be the normal, natural response for all the evil that we did to him. You know, other than thinking that Joseph would most likely respond this way. Why? Because they think, well, if somebody treated me like this, I would respond this way. Other than that, you know, perhaps their own hearts thinking, this is how we would respond. They had no basis for thinking Joseph would seek vengeance. I mean, think about it. In Genesis 45, we have already seen that Joseph had forgiven them when he realized that they, they had acknowledged their sin and how they had changed. When even Judah was willing to be a substitute for Benjamin and be a prisoner for the rest of his life so that Benjamin could go free. And that's when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers and he wept and wailed and, and hugged them and embraced them and welcomed them. Now that was 17 years ago. And then after that, after he welcomed them, he set them in Goshen, the, the best land in Egypt. Even with the option of some of them being able to serve as the royal shepherds to Pharaoh. Joseph had forgiven them. He had been kind to them. He had been loving to them. He had taken care of them and had shown only grace to them for the past 17 years. 
These brothers should have no reason to doubt Joseph's forgiveness and love. And yet now that Jacob has died, they doubt whether Joseph has actually forgiven them. Really what is happening here is the weight of their own guilt and sin causing the brothers to question Joseph's favor toward them. Joseph can't possibly forgive us like that without making us pay. Now that our father has died, surely Joseph is going to punish us and give us what we deserve for what we did to Joseph. The weight of their own guilt is causing them to see Joseph in a different light. And so they become afraid of Joseph. So much so that they're afraid to go into his presence now. And they sent an intermediary person uh, with a message to Joseph. Look at verse 16 and 17. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now the question here comes, are the brothers speaking the truth? Or are they lying and using their late father's name, that whom Joseph so loved, and using God's name, saying they're servants of God, to somehow bring Joseph to forgive them? Commentators are divided on this. Some say he's speaking the truth, and some say that uh, the brothers are lying. Well, I lean more toward the fact that these brothers may be lying out of fear, Because really, if you think about it, if Joseph really wanted to tell Joseph to forgive his brothers, he would have told Joseph that. I mean, for 17 years, he lived with Joseph. Why would he keep it a secret and simply tell his brothers? So on hearing this message, Joseph now weeps. And most likely he's weeping because he realizes their guilt is still heavily weighing on them. And they still lack assurance that Joseph had truly forgiven them. And now they're afraid of him despite of how he has treated them. Verse 18 says, His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are servants. So the brothers on hearing the report, Okay, so Joseph hasn't thrown a fit. He actually weeps in response to their message. So they now muster up some courage to go into his presence. And notice here, the brothers are not making any Demands except that they are guilty and they are the mercy of Joseph and they're somehow trying to appease him now by saying, we will serve as your slaves for the rest of our lives. Please forgive us for what we've done to you. And Joseph responds to them saying, do not fear. He says that both in verse 19, if you look at verse 19, and then again in verse 21, where again he repeats himself, so do not fear my brothers. In fact, verse 21, then he goes on to say, don't just fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 
See, their suspicions about Joseph did not in any way change Joseph's attitude toward them. He had no intention of punishing them. And so he reassures his, be- his brothers, you have no reason to fear. And he tells them, I'm going to continue to provide for you and care for you and even your little ones. You know, God had been working through Joseph in the lives of his brothers. But the problem with the brothers is that they still haven't fully understood the grace and the forgiveness shown to them. Why? Because of the weight of their guilty conscience. Now there's a sense in which we as Christians, because of the enormity of our sin or because of the guilt that's weighing down on our conscience because of our sin, we can sometimes have a difficult time seeing the enormity of God's grace and forgiveness shown to us through Christ. And then we begin to doubt God's goodness and God's grace and God's forgiveness shown to us in Christ. Now, how does this happen? Sometimes this this doubt and this lack of assurance and questions regarding whether God has really forgiven my sin comes because of sin. Uh, Joel Beakey, uh, a pastor theologian, he He has a series of talks on the assurance of salvation, and one particular one is on lack of assurance. And the first, he's got about 10 reasons that he gives about uh, why believers can have a lack of assurance. The first one that he talks about is the presence of sin. It can be past sins or even present sin. So sometimes, before we became a Christian, we lived such a worldly life that we did such heinous sins that once the person becomes a believer, these sins still haunt that person. And it weighs heavily on their conscience as these memories come back to mind. And if it's not past sins, then it's present sins. Where the person thinks, okay, now I'm a believer. This is what Christ has done. I have the Spirit of God working in me. But then I I, I just go and fail. I fail as a spouse. Fail as a parent. Fail as a brother and sister in Christ. Fail as a neighbor. Fail as a Christian worker. And then we think, I shouldn't be like this. Why do I still keep sinning? Why do I still keep failing? And the guilt weighs heavy on the soul. So much so that then we begin to see God differently and question God's love and question his forgiveness and question his goodness. And if it's not not the presence of sin, sometimes it's just being tired and exhausted or maybe being overworked and you just don't feel the love of God and you know experientially uh, feel a sense of the forgiveness 
of God in Christ. You say, you know, I, I, I had it last week or I had it last month, but I, I just don't have the experience of that anymore. And again, because that feeling is not there when really what we need is just a break or just good rest and sleep. It causes us to doubt God and His goodness and His forgiveness. And we begin to see God in a different light. Sometimes it's because of our own expectations. We think, I'm a Christian, therefore I should be at this level of maturity. And I see others around me, and they're doing so much more better than I am. And then again, the, the weight of guilt and sin and everything else weighs heavily on our conscience. And again, we doubt God's goodness and grace and His forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Brother, sister, if you are a Christian, I want to tell you this, that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world and he lived a perfect life. And as Jesus lay on that cross, God poured out his entire wrath, his just wrath on Jesus Christ for your sin. Every sin of yours, past, present, and future, God poured out his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ, on that cross. And he poured it in its entirety. So much so that God's wrath was satisfied. His wrath was fully quenched as he poured it out on his son, Jesus Christ, for your sin, for your every sin, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to say to you this morning, stop questioning God. You see the sin in your life, well, it is God's means by which He is making you see more and more your need for Jesus Christ. So run to Him. Don't be afraid of Him. Don't run away from Him. But run to Him and see what He has done. You know, the, the, the reality is this. The more a person grows and becomes more Christ-like, they be become more and more aware of their sin. Things that didn't seem like sin in their younger, immature days become very big sins in their life now because God is purifying the person. And it's not meant to crush us, but it's meant to cause us to see our need for Jesus more and more and turn to Him and run to Him. Do not be afraid, child of God, for God has paid for your sins in full by crushing His Son. So how do we, when we you know, whether it's tiredness, whether it's sin, whether it's other things. How do we keep this in mind and not lo lose focus on who God is and what He has done in and through Jesus Christ? 
Well, I would say this, and we've talked about this many, many times from this pulpit. Spend time in God's Word, even when you don't feel like it. Because it is God's Word that will remind you of absolute, unchanging truths of who God is and His character. Spend time in communion, in prayer. And talk to God. Talk about your fears and your apathies and everything. Confess your sin. And then spend time in fellowship with God's people because the more you are away from God's people, the more isolated your life is. And when and sins remain unchecked in your life, that is exactly how you will feel, distant from God, distant from the love of God and the forgiveness of God in and through Jesus Christ. So brother, sister, I want to encourage you just as Joseph did not change in any way and it was only the guilt of his brothers that caused them to doubt Joseph's love and care and forgiveness that we would know that as we focus on who God is and his character rather than ourselves, we will continue to be encouraged about who God is and encouraged to follow him. In fact, that also reminds me, you know, Joel Beakey again in his, in his talk. He talks about Romans 8. We read part of it this morning. And he says, when Paul looks at, looks for assurance and encourages the saints about assurance of their salvation, what he says is this. He doesn't say, oh, I keep failing. And somehow, you know, you still have to look through that and gain assurance. Now, what he says in Romans 8 is, it is God who justifies. It is Christ who died. It is the Spirit who draws us into the love of God from whom we can never be separated. And then he goes on to say, it's the triune God who makes me sure by his own character and his own gospel that I am secure in him. And so the center of Paul's thinking and assurance is not himself, it is God, end quote. So brother, sister, again, I would say, when you go through these things, you don't depend on your faithfulness, you don't depend on your feelings, you don't focus on yourself. Look back to God. Look at what the Father has done through the Son and by the Spirit. And that's how you gain assurance of the love and the forgiveness and the grace that is available in and through Christ. So that's first the reassurance that Joseph gives to his brothers who are weighed down by their sin. That brings us to our second point, the providence that then Joseph talks about the providence of God in verses 19 through to 21. You know, it's interesting as we come to the end of this book and as we see these few verses. This is essentially a reversal of what happened in the garden. Because in verse 19... Joseph, to reassure his brothers, then gives reasons because of his view of God. He says, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Remember back in Genesis 3 in the garden. Satan's temptation in the garden was, if you eat the forbidden fruit, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In the sense that like God, Satan's temptation was you will get to determine for yourself what is good and evil. 
You'll get to call your own shots. You won't be under God, but you'll take the place of God and you get to decide what's good and evil in your life. That was the original temptation and the temptation that the first humans fell into. But now as we come to the end of this book, by the grace of God that is at work in Joseph's life, Joseph doesn't fall into that same temptation. Instead, Joseph says to his brothers, I am not in the place of God. You know, Joseph, because of his high position, could have, you know, could have had his brothers killed and nobody would question him. But instead, Joseph says, I am not in the place of God. I don't have authority to exact justice and make everything right. That's God's job. I'm under God. You know, again, as Christians, when someone has wronged us, we need to remind ourselves this fact. I'm not in the place of God. It doesn't mean that we can't seek out our God-ordained authorities that may be there to make things right. But we don't personally seek out vengeance. We don't try to play God. You know, maybe in our marriages, Oh, my spouse has wronged me. I'm going to play God and make my spouse pay. No, we don't do that. Oh, my sibling. My sibling has wronged me. I'm going to play God and make my sibling pay. Or make my parent pay. Or, or my brother or sister, they have wronged me and I'm going to make that person pay for the wrong that they have done. No, we don't get to play God. We are not God. We must, like Joseph, remind ourselves we are not in the place of God. We are under God, and God will make things right. And then he goes on to explain further, Joseph, his understanding of who God is and his sovereign workings in verses 20 and 21. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Notice here, Joseph doesn't ignore the evil that his brothers have done to him. Notice what he specifically says. He says, you meant evil against me. He doesn't ignore the fact that evil was done to him. In fact, that word meant has the idea of planned or purpose. So he's saying, you meant or you planned or you purposed evil against me. You had evil intentions in what you did to me. But then, what else does he say? But God, again the same word, meant it for good. So while you planned and you purposed evil in what you did to me, God planned and God purposed in that same event for good. So here's the thing. The brothers in what they did, they planned and purposed to do evil to Joseph. But God, in that same action of what the brothers did, had planned it and purposed it to do good to Joseph as well as others. And what was that ultimately for Joseph to become second in charge of Egypt and provide for his family and save the lives of many people? The same event, planned by man for evil intentions, but ultimately planned by God for good intentions. I mean, it's similar to what Joseph said to the brothers in Genesis 45, 5. And now, this is Joseph speaking, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. So the, 
That's the, in what the brothers did. And then he goes on to say, for God sent me here before you to preserve life. You saw me, God sent me. Same action, two different perspectives. So the Bible teaches that God is totally sovereign, but it also teaches that man is responsible for his actions. But in the ultimate scheme of things, God's actions and man's actions are not parallel, even though they go together. In the ultimate scheme of things, it is God who is working out his sovereign will in all things. Listen to what Ephesians 1.11 tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That means God is working out his sovereign will and purposes even through the sinful actions of man. You know, what's interesting is the text doesn't say God used the actions of the brothers. God used the evil that the brothers had done and made it into good. That's not what the text says. In the sense that, you know, the brothers did something and, and now God is thinking, oh, w- w- what should I do now? How can I turn this around and do something? That's not what the text says. You meant evil, you planned evil against me, but God planned the same event for good. Now why is it so important to understand that God is simply not reacting or responding to evil actions and disasters that happen in the world after it has happened, but that God has actually purposed it it all. Why is it so important to understand that? Here's why. See, because if God is simply reacting to the evil and the disasters in this world, it would mean that the sinful actions of man and the disasters that happen are out of God's control till it actually comes to pass. And then he's like, oh, God was doing something here. Something's gone wrong here. Now I've got to do something and fix it. That would mean that God's sovereign plan is not working out in all things. God is merely trying to work out his sovereign plan once something has come to pass. It's a big difference between the two. But that's not what Genesis 50, 20 says. I love this quote from D.A. Carson. It's a bit long, but I think it's worth uh, what he says. Uh, commenting on Genesis 50, 20. He says this, The profundity of this reasoning comes into focus as we reflect on what Joseph does not say. Joseph does not say that during a momentary lapse on God's part, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, but that God, being a superb chess player, turned the game around and in due course made Joseph prime minister of Egypt. Still less does he say that God's intention had been to send Joseph down to Egypt in a well-appointed chariot, but unfortunately, Joseph's brothers rather mucked up the divine plan, forcing God to respond with clever counter-moves to bring about his good purposes. Rather, in the one event, the selling of Joseph into slavery, there are two parties and two quite different intentions. On the one hand, Joseph's brothers acted and their intentions were evil. On the other, God acted and his intentions were good. Both acted to bring about this event. But while the evil in it must be traced back to the brothers and no farther, The good in it must be traced back to God. God is sovereign and invariably good, and man is morally responsible and frequently evil. 
So we must have this dual perspective for anything that happens in the world. Natural disaster, yeah, there were natural things that happened, but God sovereignly had planned that. Some evil action of man going on here, wicked thing that has happened, yes, it was because of the wicked desire of that man or those people, but from a sovereign God perspective, God had sovereignly planned it. There's always a dual perspective we must have to everything that happens in this world. Now the question comes, how can it be that man be totally responsible for his actions if God is totally sovereign even over the actions of man? Answer? I don't know. There is a mystery there. But the Bible affirms both truths. God is totally sovereign over everything, including the actions of man. And yet, man is totally responsible for his actions. The Bible affirms both truths, even though it doesn't explain how these two truths work together. Maybe that's a good question for us to ask when we get to heaven. But just because we don't know how the two work together, we cannot deny what God's word says. We must hold both together. In fact, I, I would say th this Genesis 50-20, it's really the key to the whole book of Genesis. You know, we saw at the start of Genesis that God sovereignly created a good world according to his sovereign plan and purpose. But then in Genesis 3, we saw Satan and what he did, and Adam and Eve and what they did, they meant it for evil. They meant it as, a, as rebellion against God. So what do we make of that? Well, we would say this. God, even with sin and death coming into this world, meant it, purposed it, planned it for his good purposes. And that's what we have seen again and again as the book of Genesis has gone forward. As he draws sinful people to himself. As he displays in glory, uh, his glory in different ways. His patience, his kindness, his mercy, his judgment, his righteousness. As he's, as he's worked in the lives of so many different people and nations in the book of Genesis. In fact, that, that's the big thing that we're seeing here. Even though there is sin in this world and evil in this world and death in this world, God sovereignly has ordained it and planned it and he is still bringing about his good purposes. In fact, even in the next book, just as we saw through the hatred of Joseph's brothers, that was God had willed it, God had sovereignly planned it to save Joseph and his family and others. Even in the next book, the book of Exodus, God's plan to save the people of Israel comes to pass through Pharaoh's sinful hatred of Israel and his wicked treatment of them sets in motion the salvation of God's people. Through the sinful actions of man, God had planned it in such a way that the deliverance would come about. Throughout history, God has continued to work through the sinful action of men to bring about his good purposes for his people. And the ultimate climax of man meaning evil or willing evil and God meaning good comes to pass when God sent his son Jesus to come into this world to save sinners like us. Listen to Peter as he's preaching to the Jews about Jesus in Acts 2.23. Peter says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
So God's definite plan, that's how Jesus was delivered up to be crucified. And then he goes on to say, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So it was God's sovereign plan, it was his predetermined plan that Jesus die on the cross, and yet it was wicked lawless men who crucified and killed Jesus. Your actions were evil. You killed Jesus. You are responsible. And yet, you had evil intentions. And yet, ultimately, in that same event, God too had good intentions. And he brought it about that way. Again, in Acts 4, 27 and 28, this is the early church praying, and they say this, For truly in this city they were gathered together against their holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to, to what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So wicked people did what they did, and they're responsible for that. And yet what took place is what God had predestined. What God had sovereignly planned. Same event, two different intentions. From man's perspective, it was for evil intentions. But God's perspective, it was for his good purposes. You know, there's an, if the greatest evil done by mankind, which is killing God's beloved son, Jesus Christ, and God brings about the greatest good, which is the salvation of this world, the salvation of you and I who have put their trust in Jesus, then how much more can we not trust when there's other evil in the world? And not trust that God is in control of that. God has sovereignly ordained that. And he's still bringing about good. See, there's no comfort in knowing that God is simply responding to evil and suffering. See, because what that means is when you experience pain and difficulty in this life, on the one hand, you could say, oh, you know what? This suffering is meaningless and purposeless and pointless because, you know, X, Y, and Z happen and that's why this has happened, but there's no other meaning to it. Or worse yet, if it's done by some evil action of a person, all we can point to is it's because of the evil intention of that person this has happened in my life. There's no comfort in that. There's zero comfort in that. And yet, when we understand God is ultimately and totally sovereign. And so every moment of suffering that you have experienced or are presently experiencing or will face in the future comes from the sovereign hand of God whose intentions are for your good. That's a comforting thought. And this is what Paul in Romans 8, the passage that we read this morning, Romans 8, 28 says, that God works all things for those who are called, for those whom he loves. So that's the second thing that we see. We see the reassurance, we see the providence, and lastly, we see the hope in verses 22 to 26. Let's go through this quickly. Verse 22, so Joseph remained in Egypt and he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. 
Now these verses, they describe God's continued favor in Joseph's life, even in the last chapter of his life. Joseph lived for 110 years. Now some scholars say that in Egyptian thinking, the ideal long life to have was 110 years. So God graciously grants Joseph to live to that ripe old age of 110 years old so that even the Egyptians can say, oh, what a wonderful God. Look at God's favor on Joseph's life. And not only that, God grants Joseph the blessing of seeing his great-grandchildren. See, Proverbs 17.6 says, Grandchildren are the crown of the age, and the glory of children is their father's. See, to live long enough to see one's grandchildren is a special blessing from the Lord. So then to see one's great-grandchildren is an even greater blessing from the Lord. And God granted Joseph to see his great-grandchildren. And interestingly, it says that Joseph adopts the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, as his own. Meaning, Joseph adopts his great-grandchildren through Manasseh as his own. Now, there's no mention anywhere in the Bible about the significance of this adoption. Uh, you know, they don't become separate tribes like Ephraim and Manasseh, like how Jacob adopted them. But they do become an important clan. You know, it's the clan of the Gileadites who come from from whom come the leaders and commanders, as Judges 5, verse 14 tells us. So they become an important clan. So either way, so Joseph lives a long life. He has the privilege of seeing his great-grandchildren. And he, as he comes to the final hours, of his, final hours of his life, as he's going to face death, Joseph is not scared. He's not disheartened. He's trusting in God, and he is full of hope. Listen to what, what he tells his brothers, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. See, for all these years... The brothers and their families lived under the protection and care of Joseph. And now Joseph is going to die. He's, he's taking his last few breaths. And he comforts his brothers by saying, even though I'm going to die, God will visit you. And that word for visit, it, uh, it even has connotations of taking care of you. God will take care of you. He will watch over you and bring you out of this land to the land of promise. What is Joseph talking about? He's talking about God's deliverance in the Exodus event. Joseph is reassuring his brothers that God will certainly bring about this deliverance from Egypt and take the people of Israel back to the land of Canaan, even though he is now going to die. In fact, so confident is he about this, look at what he does in verse 25, then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. See, he's so confident that God will bring them into the land of Canaan that he makes his brothers swear. Take my bones from Egypt and carry it to the land when God does deliver you. Joseph's insistence to have his bones carried back to Canaan tells us that Joseph, like his fathers, expected to be raised up one day from the dead and possess the land that God had promised them. And then verse 26 says, So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And the book of Genesis ends. It seems like a morbid ending, isn't it? 
Like, oh, it ends with this great man, Joseph, who was such a wonderful testimony, who, you know, who is called as a, a blessed man, a fruitful man planted by the streams of water, who depended on God. He's just, he's just dead, embalmed, and he's in a coffin in Egypt. Genesis started with God creating a good world full of life. And at the end of the book, you have Jacob dying and then now Joseph is dead and his coffin is in Egypt. And yet, you know, this coffin of Joseph in Egypt would serve as a powerful reminder to the people of Israel to put their hope and trust in God. See, because as the generations go past, life would begin to become hard for the Israelites in Egypt. And Joseph's coffin then would be a powerful reminder of God's promise to deliver them and bring them back to Canaan. Why? Because Joseph said, when that happens, you must take my bones and take it back to the land. And as the generations passed, this coffin would have been a symbol of great hope for them that God will do this one day. In fact, Acts 7, verses 23 to 25, says that this promise of God's deliverance that was passed on through the generations, this hope would then come into the mind of Moses when he was 40 years old as he struck one of the Egyptians when he saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite man. And it was God putting this hope that has been kept alive through the generations and God awakening Moses' heart and using Moses as the instrument to visit his people and to deliver his people from Egypt. And when they leave Egypt, what do they do? As we read in Exodus and then finally in Joshua, they would in fact carry Joseph's bones and bury the bones of Joseph near Shechem, the place that Jacob had promised to Joseph and his sons. So here's what I want to end with. Now the Israelites had the tomb of Joseph that was a tangible reminder to them, giving them that hope of deliverance. No, we don't have a tomb with a body in it to give us hope. In fact, we, for us, there is an empty tomb of Jesus Christ who died and rose from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead and there is an empty tomb, all who have put our trust in Jesus also have hope that we too will be resurrected one day and ultimately delivered from the curse of sin in death and dwell along with Jesus for the rest of eternity. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of Genesis. This is the God who is sovereignly working out his good purposes even redeeming a people to himself. And as we get this, even through the sinful actions of people, and as we are reminded of these words, may it cause us to then wait in hope for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will ultimately make everything good again, and we will be with him. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for the great God you are. We thank you for the glorious God you are. We thank you for the way that you have, in so many different ways, re revealed your glory to us in and through this wonderful book of Genesis. Of how you are sovereign, not just in creation, of how you continue to sustain this world, of how you are sovereign over disasters, how you are sovereign over the sinful actions of men, 
and how you are still good in all that and bringing out your good purposes. Father, we thank you that even though we can't comprehend all of your ways, we accept who you are by faith as we see the objective truth of who you are as you've revealed yourself to us in your word. Help us to trust you more and love you more. We thank you for Jesus who came in the form of a human being and so in a very tangible way, you have revealed yourself to us in and through your Son. Help us each day to run to the cross and be reminded of your love and forgiveness and grace shown to us through Jesus Christ and help us to wait in hope for Christ to return who will make all things right and we will be in his presence one day. Help us, Lord, till our dying breath to be faithful to you, to trust in you, and to point others to our dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.